Hey there, good afternoon. Welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Show. It's exactly five o'clock here in Salford in the UK. Hope you had a good weekend. Thank you, as always, for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on RichieAllen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, a little bit later on, Stuart Waiton is the public face of the Scottish Union for Education. It's got a lot of really interesting campaigns going on right about now. So Stuart will join me, regular guest, very interesting, always interesting guy. We'll talk with him about a number of things. Don't miss it later. That's our two. Before that, the Sunday Times best-selling author, Christine Hart. She's also a private investigator. And she worked for Fleet Street. Well, she worked for the biggest newspapers in this country. I've invited her on to talk about the fallout of Prince Harry's victory over Mirror Group newspapers last week. He was awarded over £140,000 in damages because his phone was hacked. What does it mean for the press in this country? This is interesting. Christine Hart will be on the programme this hour to discuss that. And you can reach out to me. You can get involved, have your say via the website, my website, commentliveritchieallen.co.uk or you can download my app. There is an app, the Richie Allen Show app, and instantly message the studio. It couldn't be simpler. Yeah, Monday's programme. It's wet, it's miserable here in Salford. So it is, it's dark. Yes, today, one week from today, we'll be celebrating Christmas Day. Some of us will be, in any case. Let me just make sure I opened up the email for the show, did I? I did. I'm ahead of myself. Ordinarily on a Monday, I'm all over the place. I'm all over the place on a Monday. But today, I'm actually doing okay. Francis in Meltdown talked about this on the Papers podcast this morning. Oh, we have so little to be worrying ourselves about in France. They're in a lather, a lather they're in, over an androgynous-looking woman winning Miss France 2024 with a pixie haircut. I can't believe that the Me Too movement hasn't finished off beauty pageants. Although, I suppose the organisers of such events would probably say we wouldn't see ourselves as beauty pageants anymore, but that's what they are, right? I mean, I asked herself, my better half is in France, and she watched it, not because it's her thing, but it was a tradition years ago in her family, and her grandfather, who's no longer with them, would watch it, and they would all get very excited about trying to pick the winner. But they've gotten all, uh, they've gone, I asked her, I said, listen, you watched it, did you, on Saturday? Yeah, I did, she said. I said, was there a swimsuit part of it? She said, there was. (laughs) There was. I can't believe that the Me Too movement hasn't finished off the beauty pageants. There hasn't been a televised one here on British telly for years, unless there has been, and I've missed it. Have I? What do you reckon? Beauty pageants? Anyway, let's talk about something more serious. Now, this is a developing story. You might have seen this this afternoon. BP has halted, that's British Petroleum, although it's BP, has halted oil shipments through the Red Sea because of concerns over Houthi militant attacks. Iranian-backed Houthi militants, that's how they refer to them in the in, in the press, and allegedly 
these Houthi militants have stepped up attacks on vessels in the Red Sea in recent days. And BP said, right, because of this, we've got to stop. We've got to stop. We've got to halt our shipments. Now, dearest listener, do I have to tell you, you're not stupid. Do I need to tell you what what has happened since this announcement by BP? Well, amazingly enough, the shipping company's share price has increased. BP's share price has increased. And the price of oil has gone up. Hmm. Do you need to be Lieutenant Columbo to, to kind of wonder what's going on there? Or to, or to maybe venture a guess as to what's really happening there? Is this a sign of things to come? I don't know. It could very well be that Iranian-backed Houthi militants are indeed ramping up attacks on BP vessels in the Red Sea. But I just don't know. Call me a cynic. Because I am a cynic. More on this maybe later today, if not today, in the week. An Extinction Rebellion woman has been given a 15-month suspended sentence. A woman called Gail Bradbrook. She's the co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. I think the other half of that is Roger Hallam. Is it? Is it Roger Hallam? It could be. So back in 2019, she broke a window or windows at the Department of Transport in protest against the HS2 high-speed railway line. Anyway, it came to court today. Slow justice. Is justice denied? Justice delayed? Is justice denied? Seemingly not. She was found guilty. 15 months suspended sentence. She was given community service. Here she is outside the court. Co-founder of Extinction Rebellion. The madwoman's name is Gail Bradbrook. I've been sentenced today for um, a suspended sentence, actually, so I get to walk free from this court today and 150 hours of community service. In fact, what I do in my life is a service to our community. The government's own committee on climate change is saying that the the British people are imperiled by our lack of action. We're imperiled. On the climate and ecological crisis. And um, that the the British government has actually been lying to the British public about uh, the crisis. And uh, my protest was against the HS2 project, which has now been... uh, acknowledged as a multi-billion pound fraud against the British public. So I I walk free today. I have no regrets for anything that I did. It's in service to life. We know that in times of great peril, people have to step forwards and they have to do what they have to do to try and protect life. Protect life. Gail, come here. You stupid, ignorant son of a bitch, dumb bastard! Jesus Christ, I've met some dumb bastards in my time, but you outdo them all. Yeah. 15 months suspended sentence. I wonder, can you be held in contempt of court for going on camera shortly after you walk out and saying basically that... Well, she didn't say she'd do it again, did she? She didn't say that. No, to be fair, she didn't. She says she doesn't regret it because she did it to preserve life because we are imperiled. You, me, everybody else is imperiled. Climate change. It's uh, seven minutes past the hour of four o'clock here in the great city of Salford. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Listen, Ireland... The Irish Taoiseach, Taoiseach, I used to get hammered years ago when I was on Irish radio for not pronouncing Taoiseach properly. Taoiseach. We used to say Taoiseach. You can't say that. You've got to say Taoiseach. Anyway, his name is Leo Varadkar. Interesting character. He's Ireland's current Prime Minister, Taoiseach. And he, he was talking today about a fire at a Galway hotel over the weekend, Saturday evening. A hotel which was due to house asylum seekers. The Ross Lake House Hotel in Ross Cahill had not been in use for a number of years. 
I think there were 300 people living in the village, something like that, and they'd commandeered this out-of-use hotel, discontinued, and they were going to put 70 or so asylum seekers in there. But a fire has put paid to that. Now, Leo Varadkar said he was deeply concerned about misinformation in Ireland. That is a direct quote. Misinformation. So he gave a press conference. and Now, you might think, well, you're covering Ireland, Richie. You know, the, the bulkier listeners are in England and in America. Listen, this is what's happening in Ireland is coming everywhere. Ireland is a testing ground. It's a Petri dish. It's a Petri dish for tyranny, is what Ireland is. Anyway, so this guy, Varadkar, is deeply concerned about misinformation and myths. I can't, can't say it. Do you think I could go to a vocal coach and learn how to pronounce M-Y-T-H-S, myths, myth, myth? He said there are absolute myths being spread in relation to refugees, such as Ireland has a, quote, open borders policy, or that it rolls out the red carpet for refugees. So Leo Varadkar is saying this is misinformation. So if you're Irish and you're saying, Jesus, we have an open border policy here, and we're rolling out the red carpet for refugees, something needs to be done about you. Because this is misinformation. In reality, what Varadkar is doing is gaslighting people. This is the very definition of gaslighting. right? While you are doing something, you're telling people you're not doing it at all. It's terrible and people are putting misinformation out, saying that we have an open borders policy. But you do. But you do. We can see that you do. <laughs> you know. And when you take... Now, in the case of this hotel in, in Ross Cahill, okay, it wasn't being used. It was out of service. But in many instances they are taking buildings that are in service and are vitally important for people living in rural Ireland. They are taking these hotels in some places and saying, right, you're not a hotel anymore for the locals. No, no, they can't have their their parties and they can't have their weddings. And No, no, we're going to put refugees in there. So you're doing all of this and then you're telling people that it's misinformation to claim you are doing the very thing they say you are doing. Anyway, on Morning Ireland... Ireland has an integration minister. His name is Roderick O'Gorman. Roderick. And he was on Morning Ireland, the flagship programme for RTE Radio 1. And he reckons that it's sinister. What's going on now in Ireland where people are standing up for themselves? It's sinister. It's sinister. I think what we saw take place in Galway was deeply sinister. Sinister. Um, I believe it was a criminal act. It was dangerous. Um, it's resulted in, in, in severe damage to private property. But I also think it was designed to intimidate people seeking action, international protection here in Ireland. I think people who use the international pr- protection process have a right to be safely accommodated while their application is being adjudicated on. Uh, and, uh, and and this is something we look to, to secure. Uh, and, and what we saw in, uh, in Galway is deeply sinister. What? I have to say now, dearest listener, just in case you wonder, no, of course I do not approve of anybody setting fire to anything. Of course I do not. I have great sympathy with Irish men and women who are asking questions about the, st- the stupidity of Ireland's immigration policy. Of course I do. And the problems, of course, of great sympathy. And I understand them. And I would agree with them on a lot of points. The setting fire to, if it was indeed a protester who did it, and it hasn't been established yet. Of course, I do not agree with that. What happens now to the men who are due to be housed in Utrecht? 
well, it puts us under real pressure in terms of our ability to accommodate people. As you know, right now, we don't, we aren't able to offer accommodation to everybody. We have about 200 people who are unaccommodated right now. Uh, and Will they this, be homeless? And this, uh, being able to use this hotel would have been, uh, enabled us to provide uh, a substantial body of that people with international protection. So right now there are 200 people without an offer of accommodation. Um, We know from the situation last year that a significant number of people are able to find accommodation themselves. And were those people who were without a home who were destined for Uttarard? Yes, it would have been. It would have been. So that do group. they remain on the streets now? The, the as I say, the we know from our experience last year that the significant majority of people are able to provide short-term accommodation for themselves. Where we identify someone who is sleeping rough, we work with the statutory services to uh, to to bring them into our system and provide them with accommodation. Yeah, unless they are actually Irish people, and they are one of the thirteen thousand two hundred Irish people currently without a roof over their heads. So if you come from outside the country, whichever part of Africa or Asia or Eastern Europe you come from, they'll look after you. They'll bend over backwards to find you someplace to put your head down for the night. But if you're one of Ireland's 13,200 homeless people, Irish people, born and bred in, in Ireland, well, sod you, basically. Screw you, is the Irish government's attitude. More from O'Gorman. There was a blockade uh, at the hotel on Saturday, on the same day as the fire. We spoke to uh, one of the people who took part in that blockade, a local Fianna Fáil councillor, Noel Thomas, earlier. Here's what, he, here's what he told us. No, that's not possible. No, what we want to see happen is a stronger policy on the immigration that's happening here in this country. Like, but should, our, should, our, should Ireland continue to accept people looking for asylum? Um, I think at this stage, to be very honest with you, I think no, we shouldn't. No I'm more. going to say that straight out. No, Why? we shouldn't. Why? Because the, the inn is full. The inn is full, Minister. How would you respond to that? I don't accept that. Um, I think, and, and Minister Hildegard Nofton spoke to it earlier on, uh, from migration generally, we get huge support in terms of work undertaken in our health services, in our hospitality services, in terms of international protection specifically. 15,000 people sought international protection in Ireland 2022. It'll be about 13,000 this year. That's 0.027% of our population. It's a tiny, tiny fraction. Um, and uh, we ha- No, 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 it isn't. And at this stage, the presenter should have jumped in and pointed out that now, because I double-checked these figures, I was told about this last week, one in five people currently residing on the island of Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland in any case, wasn't born in the country. Amazingly. Isn't that just astonishing? We have an international obligation to provide uh, a system whereby people can seek international but protection. But hundreds of them are, are living on the streets now. Absolutely, there's a real challenge with the accommodation uh, process for international protection applicants. Yeah, we can't do anything about our own homeless. As I said again, over 13,000. Can't do anything about it, but I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll find room for the homeless. We'll, we'll, we'll find room for asylum seekers who come in from anywhere in the world. Mad stuff. A little bit more of this. The claims of people opposed to the housing of asylum seekers... This is important. Now, those who are opposed to it... Seekers, ...especially men, that they're unvetted. What checking is there? Wait till you hear the gaslighting here. 
every uh, international protection applicant is fingerprinted uh, and their fingerprints are uh, checked according to two EU databases in terms of had a claim being made in another EU member state and have they been uh, involved in any element of criminality across an EU member state. So that is that is the, the checks that take place here in Ireland uh, and in terms of this idea of, of, of being vetted or not, that's a far greater degree of check than anybody else moving so into all an vetted. area. I, I don't want to use the term vetting because vetting is something very specific in terms of child protection. Yes. But there is a, uh, uh, everyone who enters this country who seeks international protection have their fingerprints taken, their fingerprints are checked against EU databases uh, and that's a significant level of, uh, uh, of security, I believe. And I think just again, some of the points that were made earlier on. EU databases. But many of these men are coming from countries where their fingerprints and their biometric data isn't shared with the European Union. Again, the presenter is wretchedly bad. I don't know where they find these presenters. I think the guy asking the questions has been on that programme for many, many, many years. You know, it doesn't matter how many databases the European Union has. If people are coming from countries that are not in the European Union and therefore are not sharing biometric data with the European Union. So this is nonsense that they are properly vetting these men. They're not properly vetting them. On on this programme, this uh, attempt to link migrants with violence, there's absolutely no evidence, no evidence at all to support those claims. Wow. Listen to this again. And you think, you know, even a very first day presenter, a man or a woman first day on the job would immediately intervene here and refer him to two or three very high-profile murders in Ireland very recently, where the perpetrator of the murder was a was an Irish was, was a non-national. But no, the presenter is as useless as tits on a board. Absolutely no evidence, no evidence at all to support those claims. And I think it is really problematic when elected representatives come onto our national airwaves and make these uh, the, these entirely bogus claims. Wow. Presenter says nothing, nothing, just carries on. To use Uttarard as an example, is it fair to ask a community of just over 300 people to take on 70 more people overnight? Yeah. Well, it, it's it's not overnight. Um, we have a community... Well, it is for them. It is for them. It's overnight, right? It is, whatever you say about, well, we speak to one or two people locally and we, we let them, we, 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 we canvass them for their feelings. It is overnight. Community engagement process set up. Well, they'll, uh, they'll go from 300 odd to 370 odd overnight. The, 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 uh, but, but we have a process set up whereby we communicate uh, with elected representatives and indeed with community representatives in terms of what uh, the, the, the numbers of international protection applicants being moved into an area and the supports that will be put in place. You're listening to a guy there called Roderick O'Gorman. I leave that, right? I don't know anything about him. Nothing. So no, nothing I am about to say is in any way personal. I know nothing about him. But you're listening to a guy who seemingly is working day and night against the best interests of the Irish people. Day and night. And you would imagine at this stage that more and more Irish people are beginning to wonder who exactly is Roderick O'Gorman taking orders from? Who, who's he... Who, 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 who is he receiving his instructions from when it comes to these insane policies? You know, you grow communities by a quarter or a third overnight, while at the same time, and this is happening nationally now, in the wake of the COVID scam, you are, you are decimating public services right across the country, while at the same time adding more and more people 
working against the interests of the Irish people. Not calling the guy a traitor, I leave those terms for other people. I'm saying he is working day and night to an agenda that is screwing Irish people to the wall. And when they dare, when they dare put their heads above the parapet to say, what's going on lads? They're accused of being racists, of being nimbies, of being far right, and they are aided and abetted, the politicians that is, by the Irish media, who refuse to ask simple questions, as you heard there. It would have been easy to to destroy Roderick O'Gorman, but the presenter chose not to. This is the Richie Allen Show. Thank you for your messages. Uh, Hi to Robert in Florida. Hi Robert, thanks for your kind message, I really appreciate that. Lewis is listening, hi to Lewis. Uh, He says, Richie, next time your Jewish friends, he says, roll their eyes when people say Jews run the world, ask them how a country the same size as Ireland can control America as the most powerful nation on the planet and be complicit in genocide. That's from Lewis. Um, doesn't make a lot of sense, that, Lewis. And as, I, as I've pointed out time and again on this programme, there are learned men and women who have absolutely no time for Israel whatsoever. They would claim that the opposite is true, that Israel is a fiefdom of the United States in the Middle East. But I take your point. Uh, but Jews are not running the world, Lewis. And if you think they are, you need to have, um, you need to have some sort of a bypass, some sort of a brain bypass. You know, they're not running the world. Uh, Corey says, at least Miss France's winner is a woman, unlike Miss America's winner, who is a man. Is that right? I'm not sure about that. You'll have to send me a link. Uh, Hi to Grace Ann, who says, I've nothing against immigrants coming to the country to be safe, asylum seekers. What I'm against, Richie, is the fact they can open up all of these unused buildings to house them, yet they leave their own people homeless on the streets. This is what makes people angry. Now, Grace Ann, I'm going to be curmudgeonly today, just for a change, not with you, okay? How many people, who are complaining, legitimately complaining, let's be honest about it, about Ireland's open-door immigration policy. How many of them have ever done anything to help Ireland's homeless? Now, that's an interesting question, because you will get people who are pissed off with Ireland's open-door immigration policy. That's a fair, that, that, you, you know, that's a completely understandable point of view, and I agree with them, but they will use this, we can't do anything for our own homeless. And I'd love to interview those people, because I'd say to them, well, what, what was the last time or when was the last time you did anything for homeless people in your community and a lot of people would be like um uh, yeah well um you see so it's interesting that i'm just being curmudgeonly there's nothing wrong with it um pedro says richie the report said men so they admit it's all men yes i think it was men earmarked for that hotel the one we've been discussing. 22 and a half minutes past the hour. It is Monday's programme. This is the final week for the programme anyway of 2023. We better make it an interesting one, hadn't we? Listen, before we get Christine Hart on, let's do another story. I thought we'd have time for two or three more stories. Let's hear Tim Montgomery. He's a journalist, conservative journalist. He writes a lot about conservative things in the Conservative Party. He, have I got the clip? I don't have the clip. Let's forget about it. Let's move on. It was on immigration anyway. Uh, Monday, 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 Monday. Listen, this is interesting. The European Union has formally announced, according to the BBC, 
that it suspects the Twitter it suspects Twitter of breaching its rules in areas including countering illegal content and disinformation. So the European Union is going after Twitter over disinformation and illegal content. Now the EU's digital commissioner is a guy called Thierry Breton and he has posted about this on Twitter. He's posted the alleged infringements on Twitter, right? So you're not doing enough on disinformation and you're not countering illegal content. Let's have a listen to... I tell you what, you know, it was all going so smoothly. And then I remembered it was a Monday. You say, don't remember it's a Monday, it won't be... It won't be so bad. Yeah, Michelle Fleury. Michelle Fleury is the BBC's North American business correspondent. She is more on this. What's the EU's beef with Twitter and what exactly does it mean, Michelle Fleury? Here we have the European Union, which has set up uh, this Digital Services Act, which is meant to try and kind of get to the heart of a problem of social media platforms putting out what is considered either disinformation or hate speech. Uh, and this is the first sort of implementation of that. You've got the commissioner, Thierry Breton, who essentially wants to be the digital policeman. Uh, and that's what we're seeing taking place here, trying to crack down on a company that the EU had already identified. You did hear that, didn't you? Just that little nugget there. It's very, very important. And that's what we're seeing taking place here, trying to crack down on a company that the EU had already identified as possibly the worst offender in this particular area already sort of earlier this year. Now they're basically following through on that now that the law has come into place. So what are the implications here? How important could this be for Musk or indeed for his stewardship of X? Well, I mean, this, this is a probe at this stage and the outcome is, is not known yet. And the things they're looking at is sort of how the company responds to illegal content on its site. Uh, it's looking at things like community notes, which is sort of one of the systems that X uses to try and kind of moderate content or, or, or sort of address, try and balance disinformation on its platform. The other areas it's looking at is things like the blue checks. Uh, that used to be a sign that it was a verified user of a politician or a celebrity. Now it's anyone who wants to pay for that. It's also looking at advertising. So it's pretty broad, this investigation. And I think both sides have a lot at stake here. For X, it's the potential, you know, huge potential for, for fines. Uh, and in fact, there was a report over the summer uh, in one American media insider saying that Musk might it might even consider pulling out of the EU altogether. Uh, for the European regulators, this is the first test of these new rules. They're going to want to show it's got teeth and they can follow through. Yeah, it's the beginning, this, and don't expect it. I mean, some of the conservative, the conservative element of the independent media, if there is such a thing, they're really, they've really taken to Musk, haven't they? They love Musk, don't they? They really believe, like Musk bringing people back and Alex Jones and others, or Musk is some saviour of free speech and he isn't or anything like it. Twitter will go the way of Facebook, which will go the way of Instagram, which is owned by Facebook, of course, and TikTok. They will all get into line and they'll be brought into line by advertisers. Big business, as we've said so many times, will drive much of this. They'll be brought into line and they will begin incrementally, at least it will seem incremental, uh, you know, at the outset. But it will begin to bring back all the old ways, you know, shadow bannings, which are happening anyway, it cont continues to happen. But also removing people for um, as simple as asking questions about things. 
Put your teeth back in, Baldy. Uh, they're back in. The time is 27 minutes past the hour. We will be joined in a moment by Christine Hart. Christine, it's great value. Be good to have her back on the show. You can reach out to me via the website, richieallen.co.uk, or by the app. Who was telling me about the... Gillian tells me Miss Netherlands, Miss Netherlands, was transgender, male to female, Richie. Jesus, is that right? Hi to Paul in North East Scotland. Hi, Paul. Thanks for that, pal, and for the link you sent me. And Gaz says, Richie O'Gorman, like all leaders, is a puppet. The people need to take action. End of story. Action, by all means. But I don't know if you're referring to my comments about about arson. Listen, I understand in London why the... I can never remember their names. <laughs> There's a name for the for those who go around interfering with the cameras, with the ULES cameras. While I totally understand that, and I get it, um, I... Arson, no. Arson, no, I'm afraid. Right, time for music. When we come back, Christine Hart. This is Monday's Richie Allen Show. It is the 18th of December, 2023. It's the final week of the year for the programme, by the way. Christmas is nearly upon us. This from 1980, you too, I will follow then. Music from you too, I will follow on the Richie Allen Show. It's exactly half past the hour of four o'clock. Fascinated I was last week by the, uh, the decision in the Prince Harry claim against Mirror Group newspapers. Uh, High Court ruled that he was the victim of phone hacking by Mirror Group newspapers and awarded him just over £140,600 in damages. Now, what was really interesting was Justice Fancourt, in his summing up of it or his summary of the entire uh, saga, said that um, editors and owners at Mirror Group newspaper knew that this practice is going on and he even named Piers Morgan who these days can be found presenting a programme for Talk TV in the evenings. Morgan um, l- later on took to the front steps or took to the steps outside his home, addressed the media and launched into a fairly extraordinary diatribe against Prince Harry and the whole process. I want to talk about that and the implications of it for the media. No better woman than uh, a friend of ours, Christine Hart. Christine is a private investigator and Sunday Times best-selling author. And as we know, uh, she worked in Fleet Street for many years, for The Sun, for other newspapers, investigating some of the um, biggest news stories of the day. Let's welcome back to the show Christine Hart. How are you, Christine? Are you there? And it was all going so well. I'm sorry. Did you mute yourself? <laughs> One of those things where you, you forget to um, click the click the mute button. I just thought it was Monday. Yeah. These things only happen on a Monday. Do you know there was a university course looked into this? Spent two years, spent incredible amounts of money and determined that for a number of reasons, yes, things do tend to go more wrong. On a Monday. So anyway, not, not, not that I want to bore you with any of that old nonsense. It's good to have you back. I know you're busy. Oh, you. um, I, I've i never been a big fan of Piers Morgan, so I'll put that out there straight away. I don't. It wasn't really until 2020 that I took a real turn against him because of his conduct on Good Morning Britain when interviewing government ministers about COVID restrictions. But we might come back to that. Um, do you think Morgan is in trouble here? 
Well, yes, uh, Richie, he is. Uh, as you know, I, I worked for the News of the World for many years, and it was I who actually brought in the phone hacking inadvertently. I had a boyfriend who um, was very, you know, upper middle class, much moneyed and connected to MI6. So he worked for all of the ex-spook agencies in London. They're not not that many, but they tend to be ex-MI6 rather than ex-MI5. And he worked for all of those. And I brought him into the news of the world. Now, he brought in phone hacking. It was a trick he learned, I think, from these agencies. And he brought it into Fleet Street. Now, he brought it to the two newspapers that I was working for. So the News of the World and the Sunday Mirror. So that's how it got into the Sunday Mirror. Now, the News of the World found out that uh, the Sunday Mirror were also using this man. It's called John. And they stole John's office boy called Glenn Mulcair. Um, they hired him for, I think, 100 grand a year. They owed uh, John Boyle a quarter of a million. And they just told him to get lost. Now, what happened, he didn't like that. So he basically finished them. So there was no, you know, Nick Davis from The Guardian finished them or, or hacked or finished them. It was John Boyle finished them in this all-out war. But he carried on working in Fleet Street. He worked for the Sunday Mirror. And then he slipped round, did a little bit of work for... Um, the Sun, but Mirror Group was his home. So Mirror Group are actually just as culpable as the news of the world. So I don't know if they're going to to fold. Um, but what I don't like about this, I mean, I was named in it as supposedly spying on the Rolling Stones and spying on Tom Cruise in his hotel room. And what I don't like about it is the people that are doing the investigation they're all about money. They're all about making books out of this, about making money. And so you've got the corruption. There's been private investigators that have been threatened. They had to move house. There's been fights between these people and the private investigators in the street. There's been lies made up around Doreen Lawrence. So I think this needs to be looked into too. And it's going to come to a head with the mail trial. The mail were never phone hacking, you see. So the mail are going to have this big blowout war. Um, Why was the mail know, not phone hacking, Chris? If everybody else was doing it. And um, I'm fascinated by what you said at the outset of this. This man who, who, who you knew who had figured out how to do it. Do, do I yeah. understand that he figured out that if you had the mobile phone number of somebody, whether it be a celebrity or anybody, and if you dialed it, but if you dialed it and included an extra digit or if you included a digit at the beginning, you got instant access to their voicemails. Was that it? Was that what he figured out? Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But there's, there's, you know, there's a, there's an interesting story how this began. I mean, I, I was... I was, as well as working for the press, I also had an advert in Yellow Pages, and I was rung up one day by a firm called CIEX, and I took along an army guy that was doing surveillance for me. We sat down, and this uh, computer company along Buckingham Gate said, oh, we want to hire you to do a surveillance against this film guy's come over from South Africa. Six other agencies have tried and failed. Um, we want you to go out and do a surveillance. So did the surveillance and the guy was so surveillance aware 
that it failed. Um, I wasn't very happy about that. And in the end, I located him, went back in on my own to CIEX Limited, um, went into their boardroom and suddenly um, all these guys were coming in. There was about six of them, anti-head of terrorism, anti-head of Scotland Yard, uh, all, all the ex, sorry, ex-head of all, all these retired guys who were part of this company that I later learned um, CIX meant uh, it's French for company X. CIE is company X just means X. And it's Michael Oatley's firm. Michael Oatley is XMI6. And these guys sat down and looked at me very seriously and they didn't want to talk about the job. They wanted to talk about the news of the world. Uh, they said, how much access do the news of the world have to the boys at Hereford? And I laughed and I said, well, a lot, because the news of the world were using serving SAS to spy on Diana, royalty, uh, Tony Blair, politicians. So they were really out of control. They had more power than the state itself at, at one point, although they didn't have a private army, obviously. Well, in a way, the ex-SAS guys um you know, were like a private army. So MI6, long before, now this is in 1996, so MI6, uh, which is what Company X is, were looking at the news of the world long, long before any of the phone hacking. Now, suddenly, uh, this man called John Boyle, who works for them and other agencies, appeared, and he said to me, Christine, I want you to introduce me to um, the news editors, Alex Marincheck. And Phil Hall and Greg Miskew, which I did. And now John Boyle brought in that phone hacking trick. Now, it could be that this was brought in as a dirty kind of Trojan horse to get the powers of the press revoked. So they became a kind of toothless kind of um, tiger that can't ever have any power that's you know a whipping boy basically and do you think that's a, do, you, do you think that's a genuine possibility that they introduced the newspapers to the fundamentals of how to hack people so that they could eventually use this to bring down the papers and to as you said to weaken the press's ability to hold power to account yeah 100% wow. and you know why what the big clue is this guy and I'll name him he's called John Boyle he lives in a 10 million pound mansion out in Peasmarsh um, Operation Wheating couldn't get near him. There was a barrister at the gate. And also um, journalists and book writers such as Nick Davies from The Guardian hasn't mentioned him in his book, uh, nor is James Hanning, who wrote The News Machine, although I know James Hanning is frustrated about that. Um, there's also been people like Sylvia Jones who wanted to do um, a documentary for Channel 4 about him. And she then said to me, oh, it's been kicked into touch. And I said, why? And she went up high. So um, it's like he's been pulled out. So he actually brought it in, yet he's not been mentioned. His office boy has been put forward as the main one that brought in phone hacking. So yes, I think, you know, care. I think it was More an care, operation. Um, yeah, I do, 100%. No, sorry, I'm, I'm, just tr I'm just trying to knit this together for myself as much as for the listeners. So the office boy was Glenn Mulcair who's taken yes. the fall for this guy Boyle. Amazing taking stuff. Taking the fall. And John Boyle is, of course... 
Now, literally, I mean, I'm a journalist myself. They would salivate if they were really reporting this. They would salivate over John Boyle. I mean, he's attractive. He's upper middle class. I think he went to Eton. I mean, he lives on an estate and he owns the estate. I mean, so what isn't that a journalist dream to write about? He's the man that invented phone hacking. But all you hear about is his is his office boy. You know, this little yeah. working now, class Christine, guy he, who doesn't know he, much he, about much. He's obviously not aware that you and I are speaking. And I'll have to reach out to, to him somehow later on to offer him right of reply this John Boyle. That's Fine. But, You'll but, be but, lucky. I know, I know, I'm guessing, but I will have to anyway, due diligence. That's right. Has anybody ever um, doorstepped Boyle and said, hey, listen, we believe you're the man behind the phone hacking. We believe you're the head honcho. Has anybody ever grabbed him and asked him for a, yes. a comment? Yes, yes. Operation Wheating. I gave Operation Wheating a 60 page statement and six hours um, interview. I actually had a minder, uh, DS Michael White was minding me. And they, before I signed the 60 pages, they went off and went to his estate out there in Beesmarsh. And um, it was his barrister. And they said to him, you did this. You brought this spy stuff all into Fleet Street. And he wasn't there. The barrister, you know, gave him some legalese and they left. And I said to those guys, I mean, they, when they came back to get me to sign the statement, it had been typed up. Um, they said, how much is that? place worth i said i don't know about 10 million and upwards and i said did you even speak to him and they said we didn't even set eyes on him so and there's no photographs online i mean he's a really good looking guy there's no pictures of him on he's a ghost i mean you won't be able to get hold of him yeah imagine um, imagine you're right imagine that the entire phone hacking saga while it did hurt a lot of people it certainly did you know so actresses and actors and others it hurt them and embarrassed them the idea that it might have been one massive almost like a false flag thing to eventually weaken the powers of the press in this country and of course Prince Harry has gone on the record hasn't he as I, I'm paraphrasing him he hasn't said I'm going to destroy the press he hasn't said that but he said look I'm, I'm going to make it happen that the press is seriously curtailed in terms of what it can and cannot do can I ask you by the way Christine Hart is our guest Christine has done everything in the media tell me this um, why and uh, we're old pals now so I'm not going to grill you um, why were you hanging around Tom Cruise and the Stones? What were you trying to find out about them? I think, you know, when you come into Fleet Street, I mean, I, I came in because, you know, the Ian Brady interest, I ended up dating Phil Hall. He brought me into Fleet Street when I was 22 years of age. I think everybody goes into Fleet Street trying to be, uh, is it Woodward and Bernstein? Right. And they have this romantic <laughs> yeah. view. They're going to topple the government or they're going to do something, you know, really exciting to do with war. And all you get from the tabloids is, uh, what's this celebrity doing? What's that celebrity doing? And, you know, other journalists, it made their hearts sink. It made my heart sink. Yeah. I mean, because you don't want to be doing it. I don't want to be, much as I think Tom Cruise is hot, I don't want to be prowling um, the Dorchester, wherever it is, you know, looking to try and get into his hotel room and, you know, clawing his bed sheets. <laughs> he yeah. might not be doing that. And tell me this, well, Christine, tell, tell, tell me this on this, because I've known you for a few years. We've never met, but we've I've known you to talk to you. And um, I love having you on. You're a brilliant guest. I mean, you really are. But at any time, did, did your conscience um, nag you at any time? Like, did you say to yourself, I don't care how much money this guy has got, or Ronnie Wood has got, or Mick Jagger has got, maybe they don't deserve this, maybe. 
Did that ever occur to you? I'm not having a go at you now because I know this is widespread practice even today uh, with, with, with paparazzis and, and investigative journalists working for the press. But did you, you know, as a decent human being, did you say to yourself, maybe I shouldn't be doing this? No, I, I don't think ever. I think, you know, the, the whole thing of fame and privilege, I think it's massively, you know, we were talking about, I was talking to the BBC about this and I said, you know, all these starlets are like, oh God, I've been papped and oh, the press are harassing me. I said, have they ever thought of the opposite to be a young girl on a council estate who wants to be a singer, who wants to be an actress, who, who, who nobody gives a damn about and they go on and they grow older and are, are we supposed to feel sorry for the privileged i mean it's a little silly i think it's a little bit of a manipulation and it's also a distraction i mean at the moment there's children being bombed out in palestine and we're all looking at prince harry i think if prince harry wants to slay dragons the the press have already had their teeth taken away through the whole phone hacking um setup which i believe it was and uh, it doesn't it doesn't need anything else because it's just going back into history why doesn't prince harry slay dragons with looking at children being killed now uh, in palestine and being a voice for that like his mother was a voice for landmines i mean we're on side with those children being murdered out in Palestine. It's pretty, it's pretty sick. And I think World War Three is going to erupt and it's going to start in the middle of the Red Sea because, you know, what's happening out there. I mean, I don't think Yemen is going to back down. Seems like Yemen is the only one that cares about child murder. So I think it's a massive distraction. And I know lots of your listeners will agree with me. Yeah, I think they will undoubtedly. But I'm going to just have one final go at you on the... On the hacking. Go ahead. No, and, and on the snooping around. <laughs> I, I don't think, you know, wealth and the privilege that goes with it. And Tom Cruise earned his wealth. Now, you might say $20 million a film is, is outlandish, and I would agree with you. But, you know, you price yourself at whatever the market value is. I would say that you're still dealing with a human being. And, you know, I, I, I find it morally reprehensible. Not you, even though I probably am saying I'm finding you morally reprehensible. Okay. But this thing, you know, of sneaking around bedrooms and, um, try, you know, pulling up, um, pulling up, um, you know, um, bits of carpet and everything, going through bins. I just think it's it's not great. I don't think, I don't think anybody deserves it. That being said, you know, if it's somebody in the public eye in terms of politics, or geopolitics, and they've got a a certain position on one thing or another. And you might be trying, trying to to kind of out the person or unmask them as some sort of hypocrite. I kind of yeah. get it. But where celebrities who just make films and write songs, I think yeah. they should just be left alone, really. Well, I do, I do. You know, and as you know, I specialised. I moved out to Belfast and worked for the Sunday Times and specialised in paramilitaries. And luckily, got to leave the celebrities behind. But I think journalists don't want to do that. I think it's the editors that push it. I know for a fact that they don't want to do it. And the public hunger for wanting to find out their business, I mean, you know, that has to that has to die out. You know, that prurience, that, you know, that kind of whatever it is, that, that interest in them. And I also think it's wrong that society, because we haven't got God, you know, we don't, we're not, we're, we're an atheist country. We have the celebrities as the priests and priestesses they're the priests and priestesses of the new world order and so everybody looks up to them like what do they do next and what do they i mean i think it has to be replaced by god and we have to say who cares what they're doing like you know do i care 
what bed sheets Richie Allen has. I mean, not really. I mean, what's the difference between you and Tom Cruise? Yeah. Why should there be a difference? Is he superhuman? And I think as a society, we have that view of people like that, and we should take it back. That's you know, very interesting, that. You, your characterization of celebrities as somehow having replaced the creator and that they're worshipped um, by people. We know that, you, you know, you go into any supermarket, you're confronted immediately by racks and racks of magazines with photographs of people. I don't know who half of these people are. And yeah, there seems to be an obsession with it. And you see, there's, you think there's a bit of a moral decay, do you, because of this, because God has been abandoned. And in, in God's place, we have celebrity. And I suppose then, Jesus, if you take it a step further, you see a lot of kids, and I live in a, an area where it's a very young population, and I see a lot of kids regularly in the parks and out on the streets playing, and they're making videos for TikTok, constantly making videos for TikTok and film, filming themselves. So there's a big vacuum there, a big moral vacuum, you think, Christine? Yeah, there is a moral vacuum, and I don't think we're in touch with God in, in this country, not at all. I mean, just just what's going on, you know, I don't know if, if you're following it, but just seeing the suffering in Palestine and, you know, seeing the... the I, I know there's been so many people out marching, and, you know, that's great, but, I mean, we're, we're just watching that, aren't we? And it's, it's going to be on all our souls, that massive stain about, you know, what's going on out there. It's just we're a country that's lost its way. We're a country without God. A country without God is a failed country. And these celebrities, they take the place of God. And I think it's wrong. I think it's really wrong. I think there's the moral decay, not that, oh, let's make them even more godlike. You know, at least the, 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 the tabloids wrote, you know, a few grubby things about them. Now they're going to be even more elevated. I think get rid of them. Uh, don't give them so much attention. Um, let them know who they actually are and get back to, to looking to, you know, the saints, the angels and, and you know, the creator. And worship that. Be interested in that. You know, and I'm, don't buy these papers. Don't I'm not, buy them. Stop buying them. Stop reading yeah, them. Yeah, I read them for, for the purposes of the show, but I, I, I'm I, not a believer in... Uh, I'm, I'm um, agnostic, I suppose. But um, it my agnosticism hasn't prevented me from, you know, being a pretty moral, pretty decent person. It's not essential, I don't think, believing in a benevolent higher power it's not essential for living a decent life where you do some good or try to do some good, you know. I mean, I do, but I don't share your faith. What do you think? But weren't, weren't you brought up Catholic, nice Catholic boy? I was, and that's ultimately what beat it out of me, Christine. You should know this, you know. You should yeah. know what went on across the Irish Sea. A lot of us have, yeah. no, have no time for it anymore. But this is a really interesting theme. But I want to go back um, momentarily to where we began this, and this is with Piers Morgan. Because it's been claimed that, I mean, it was claimed in the High Court last week that Morgan knew, end of story. He denies it. Um, if if the High Court judge is right, fan court, it means that Morgan perjured himself during the Levison hearings. I wonder, is, Mor you know, is Morgan worried about having his collar felt? I mean, do you believe that he knew this was going on when he was the youngest editor in the country at the Mirror? You think he must have known this was going on and participated well in it? Yeah, sadly, I mean, because the 
characters, and I won't name them, um, of the Sunday Mirror knew, and uh, they all mixed in. It was all miracles. So, so yes, he he did know. Um, I don't think he'll get his collar felt. Isn't he one of those people with nine lives that sort of have so yeah. many good connections that, I mean, there was supposed to be a phone hacking trial. I was supposed to be a witness from Wheating, but he pleaded guilty and so it was all stand down and so the truth didn't come out you know the truth about how it came in the involvement of company x the involvement of mi6 the involvement of, of, of john um you know how the real story behind it so that's never come out so why would it come out why would piers morgan have to trot off to belmarsh he'd, he'd get a hard time in there wouldn't he from the muslim brotherhood I imagine he would do yeah he's well he's taking a very pro-israel stance in terms of the programme he presents. So he has, horrifically, yeah. Um, I mean, I share your your thoughts on that. I think it's approaching 20,000 people dead there now. It's it's amazing how easy it is to say things like that. 20,000, most of whom are women and children. Oh, it's terrible. It's horrendous, isn't it? I mean, it's a championship football stadium. It's just horrific, isn't it? I mean, oh, wow. Because you tweet a lot about it. Um, Oh, you're cutting. Yeah, we're, we're breaking I tweet up. a lot about it, yeah. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to very briefly just cut the line and then go back because the line is very bad there. Christine Hart is our guest, uh, Fleet Street journalist, investigative uh, reporter, uh, private investigator. She's working as a private investor, investigator these days. Let's see, can we clear that line out and, um, and get her back on? It's coming up for seven minutes to the top of the air. Yeah, we lost you momentarily there. You were breaking up. Sorry about that, Christine. Yes. You were talking about uh, tweeting. I do tweet a lot. Um, if anybody wants to follow me, it's Christine Hart PI on Twitter. I do tweet a lot because I think we have to. We have to, you know, put, put it out there. We have to, um, you know, talk about it. We have to try and do something to move the leaders, the elites, to um, to stop Israel. Why, in your opinion, is why, in your opinion, are Western governments so reticent to condemn what Israel does now, what Israel did five years ago, and what Israel has been doing for 75 years? Why are they so reluctant to take Israel on, do you think? I think because they are Israel. I think Rishi Sunak has businesses out there in Tel Aviv. I think, you know, he's loyal to them. And I think so is America. I think we are Israel. Um, and so is America. So we won't go against ourselves. So I think, am I allowed to say that even? So, so, I think there's certain things you're not allowed to say, which says it all. You can say what you want on this programme. It's a free speech um, platform. Yeah, his family has right. a number we of... Yeah, go ahead, Christine. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, we haven't really got free speech. I mean, sorry, carry on. No, 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 no. I know there's a little delay there. No, I was getting out of your way. You were going to talk about free speech, so go ahead. Yeah, I don't think we have free speech. And I think all this thing about the phone hacking and all that, because they, they haven't, you know, come out and talked about it in an honest way. I mean, we have today, but nobody else has. And it will just be ignored and they'll go on, you know, talking about it in the same way. Piers Morgan won't ever end up in Belmarsh with the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, but it's a distraction, isn't it? It's a distraction. As to, I really think World War Three is happening out there in the Red Sea. I mean, um, we're, I think we're on the wrong side, actually. 
Yeah, you think the build up, the military build up out there, you think something could spark off and it might become a wider conflict, do you think? You, you really believe that? Absolutely, yeah. Do you? I mean, it's looking really dark. I, I, it's just going to kick off. And I think because people are so passionate as well, because they're seeing children. I mean, in these videos and photographs, uh, and I've retweeted them, you can see children's skulls crumbling. I mean, you know, the, 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 the people are picking them up from under the rubble and they're just rags. And people are incensed because we're grown ups. We're on our way out to a different realm. And what the, the, the least we can do when we're here is protect the little ones that are coming in, the inner little ones and we're not we've got hands tied behind our back and people are passionate about this people people don't like it and people people are going crazy and it just feels a lot of us now we're sitting in a country that's completely on the wrong side of it is some of that pro-palestinian support which is completely understandable and i would say admirable is some of it spilling over into harassing behavior against jewish people in london do you think Yes, that's that's not right at all, because most of the Jewish people are against the murder. I mean, you see that you see that everywhere. You see them, you know, on social media talking out about it, saying not in our name. Uh, you know, any decent God fearing person or even non God fearing person like yourself, Richie, are against child murder. We, we're grown ups. We're. We're even if they're not our children, we're supposed to protect them. And so witnessing this is it just feels so bad because it feels like a stain on all our souls just to even be looking at it. Christine, I'm glad the line held up there just to the end, but it, it's slightly breaking right. up again. So we'll we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for coming on and talking about John Boyle and MI6 and phone hacking. It's fascinating. You're on Twitter, of course. When I do the podcast notes after the live show, I'll make sure your links are on the podcast notes for people who might not have heard uh, from you before. But in the meantime, Merry Christmas to you and to yours. Oh, thank you. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to your listeners. Thank you. Thanks, Christine. Thank you for having me on, Richard. I look forward to speaking to you again in the new year. It's always a pleasure. Thanks. Christine Hart. Uh, who, as I said, has done it all in journalism. Fleet Street, The Red Tops, The News of the World, investigating. She's a private investigator these days. Amazing that really if it's true, isn't it? You know, don't call me naive. I'm not saying it isn't true, but you never know, you know, if that was the whole point of of introducing into the offices of the the tabloid newspapers in this country. You know, introducing to them folks who could who could enable them, who could, who could show them how to hack the phones of people, royalty, celebrities, sports people, politicians. If the ultimate aim of that was it was going to be a long game to weaken the powers of the press in this country. What do you make of that? Drop me a line, richieallen.co.uk. Excuse me, uh, is the website address comment live, but you can send me a message via the app. There is an app for the Richie Allen Show. We're fast approaching one minute to the top of the hour. Time for more music. And don't forget, not too far away, Stuart Waiton is back on the programme. He's brilliant value too. Looking forward to chatting with him. Here's music from The Who. This is The Seeker then. 
music from The Who, The Seeker on the Richie Allen Show. The programme this week is sponsored by NutraHealth365.com. Winter's on its way and so are colds, flu and other respiratory illness. <laughs> a robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly. Immunex 365 vitamin capsules from NutraHealth365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2 as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. Welcome back to the programme. My pal Gina Ann Crowley recommends a documentary showing on Netflix at the moment about the designing of the great album covers of the 1970s. I've seen the trailer. It looks fascinating. Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. Definitely one of those albums, isn't that right, uh, Gene? And thank you for your messages to the programme. By the way, if I get a bit flaky this week, right? I say this every year and I've been saying it for nine years. If I get a bit flaky this week, it's because it's an end of term feeling, really. You get to the end of it, right? So I came back from my summer holiday on the 2nd of September and I have worked straight through all the way. I'm not looking for any violins now or anything but you get to that stage you just start to wind down you think about crimbo crimbo as they say in some parts of this country and um you might, i might get a bit flaky yeah more than usual yeah i should yeah i should put the caveat more than usual the occasional mistake might creep in anyway <laughs> it just might do Kay could not agree more with our friend christine hart god's been totally abandoned in this country. It won't end well. In the 60s, there were seven churches slash chapels in a two-mile radius of my home. Today, there are three. In 2020, the NHS became a religion for many people. It had to be worshipped every week by clapping and could save you from death. Just my opinion, says Kay. Yeah, a lot of people would agree with you, Kay. Hi to Paula, who says, Christine is dead on. We need God. Our family was brought up Roman Catholic too, but their teaching isn't biblical, says Paula. Thank you, Paula. Yeah, I wasn't, my my family wasn't a religious family. My parents were hypocrites. They would send us to church on Sunday mornings, but they wouldn't attend themselves. That's the sort of idiots that raised me, you see. Or those were the sort of idiots that raised me. Who raised me? Who raised me? Richie, you're supposed to have an English degree. Yes, that's right. Idiots. Yeah, you go over to 11 o'clock mass on a Sunday, but I'm not going to go. That's right. In, 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 in the end, we wouldn't go in. St. Paul's Parish in Lisdogan in Waterford, I would just stand outside and try and catch the gospel. So that if I was quizzed, which reading was the gospel today, Richie, or Richard as I was called, I would have, I would have waited until the gospel was read and then I would have scarpered. But at least I had the knowledge of which reading. Well, it was, a, it was from the gospel of St. Luke. Yeah, and it was about X, Y or Z. So we weren't very religious in terms of we didn't do anything remotely religious. But... Um, I never took to it in any case. Anthony says, I think they probably did look at the way the press do not call out politicians and so-called experts on their shows. It's clear they have no power now, says Anthony. Thank you, Anthony. 
Thank you very much. Keep these messages coming in, by the way. I've got to open up the website. Let me do that now briefly. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, it's comment live on richieallen.co.uk. Read out some of these now. William says, man's schemes are inferior to those made by heaven. That's the Chinese proverb. Thank you very much. Hi to Millie. Thank you, Millie. Faisal says, I'm not sure interest in celebrity is the same as worshipping them or taking what they say seriously. If anything, it's science. Finance and politics as validated by the media that replaced God and not just in atheist societies. A good point, Faisal. Yes, I take it on board. But I go back to the whole TikTok generation. I think a generation of youngsters, very young youngsters, want to be influencers. They want to be famous. Now you might say, well, there was always an element of children or an old, there was almost always an element of people, an element in society. There was always a group People who wanted to be famous, yes. But I've never seen anything like it now. So I, I, I see where Christine is coming from. No doubt about that. Monk is in Canada and sends this. In all male bathrooms in government buildings here in Canada, they have placed women's products like tampons. We've all, we've all come too far away from schooling. All of us, me included. We're, we're too far away. Too many degrees of separation. Monk, what you meant to write was, Richie, here in Canada, they have placed women's products like tampons in men's bathrooms. <laughs> That's all you had to say. I'm a hypocrite. I, I do the same when I type, when I write things on, on social media occasionally. And he sent me a link to the Toronto Sun. That's right. Menstrual products placed in men's washrooms in federal buildings. Government buildings, yes, madness. Well, what men should do is flush those products down the toilet if they are flushable or put them in the bin. This is how you do it, right? Put them in the bin. I go into a man's bathroom, which I do when I'm out and about. If I see female hygiene products, I'm going to put them in the bin because they do not belong in a men's bathroom. It's coming up for nine minutes past the hour. I mean, God bless us and save us. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And of course, that's for trans men. Women who identify as men, but who still have a menstrual cycle. So you identify as a man, but you have your period. Therefore, me women, sorry, men, it's very confusing, isn't it? Men can have periods. Yes, men can have periods. Right, it's time for another tune. While I get my next guest on the programme, he is Stuart Waiton. He's great value, as I've said already. You can send me more messages while uh, we're doing that. Here's Deacon Blue from Scotland with Dignity on Monday's Richie Allen Show. That's the one. I'll get there in the end. Yeah, 12 minutes past the hour. Deacon Blue Dignity on the Richie Allen Show, Monday's programme. Thanks for all of these messages, by the way, about religion and, and the place of God and the moral decay because of the decline of organised religion. I'm an atheist, I'm agnostic. Agnostic is probably fairer. 
Um, we'll do a phone in on that. You know that that will light the um, lines up, won't it? Now, Stuart Waiton is a friend of ours and a regular guest. It's good to have him back on. Just before we welcome him back on, uh, he wears many hats. He's a university lecturer. He is a criminologist. He's an author, and he is a journalist. And he's been writing in the newsletter for the Scottish Union for Education about discipline and self-discipline in students and in schools. And I'm going to read you a little bit of this because I found this fascinating, really fascinating, okay? He says, he writes to Stuart, there's been a lot of discussion about school discipline in the news over the past week. Discipline and self-discipline are central to the education process. They are not add-ons. Teachers demand that students learn It's a fundamental aspect of teaching, but making demands of children has become deeply unfashionable in education policy and across broader society. As a university lecturer, I expect students to have developed self-discipline and know how to learn independently. But even in higher education, we make serious demands on students to study hard and to think increasingly there is pushback if we ask them to take themselves too seriously. The problem for teachers in schools is that nurturing and well-being have now replaced demanding and disciplining as core values in teaching. Is it possible that classroom discipline is getting out of hand because we have we have failed to put the idea of discipline at the heart of the learning process? Some of the media paint a picture of rapidly declining student behaviour, feral children with plummeting attention spans. And he goes on to write, Stuart, no doubt children are less socialised due to COVID-related school closures and teaching is tough, but if pupils don't grasp the value of learning, perhaps schools and the teaching unions need to reflect on whether, what and how we are teaching may have contributed to this problem. Let's welcome back to the programme the chairperson for the Scottish Union for Education, Stuart Waiton. Hi Stuart, welcome back. Thanks for having me. That's a bleak picture you've painted in this article on the substack for the Scottish Union for Education. It can't be that bad, surely, is it? (laughs) Uh, I think it's probably worse, if I'm honest. (laughs) It's worse. Um, uh, It's worse. I I I think there's a lot of problems. Um, Some of them are historic. Some of them aren't specific to Scotland. But as ever, Scotland seems to be kind of better at being worse um, than many other countries because they follow the uh, the modern trends at the minute. Uh, so I would say, I was trying to summarise my thoughts. So these are a few thoughts. I think we have shifted from a situation where we focused on substance and subjects, as in school subjects, towards values and feelings. I think that's one shift. Uh, I think we are increasingly uh, encouraging kids to look inwards and become self-absorbed rather than recognising that education should be about drawing children out of themselves into the world so that they don't think they're the centre of the universe but grasp that there's this thing called society, history and knowledge and so on. Um, So... Part of that is instead of instilling character, we are encouraging a kind of identity 
obsession. I've got a nice poster up from one of the schools in Edinburgh, which I'll read to you uh, if I have the time. Um, school principals of James Gillespie High School. Um, which, uh, anyway, you might find them interesting when I read them to you. Uh, we also have the politicization of the curriculum um, with a lot of woke. Uh, things actually in the curriculum and in every subject so things like anti-racism is meant to be in every subject including maths and so on uh, and i also think we're now turning teachers into therapists instead of them being people who transmit knowledge of past generations they're increasingly becoming therapeutic so there, there's a few things to start with uh, and of course within all that how, how do you discipline children um, if you have this new kind of outlook in schools, it's become becoming increasingly a problem. And in Scotland, they've noticed this with teachers even saying that they're finding it harder and harder uh, to discipline children. So, yes, serious problems. Now, before we talk about the discipline, which fascinates me as somebody who was regularly disciplined in primary school and in secondary school, and I don't mean physically, and, and I, I usually deserved it. We'll come back to that as well. Becoming therapist, can you give us an example of how that might work? What would it look like, a teacher becoming more of a therapist than an educator? Uh, well, it's funny. I'm just, uh, I don't know whether I'll be able to find it on my computer, but <laughs> somebody today sent me um, a list of all the therapeutic classes that kids have. And even I was surprised uh, in terms of um you know, so when my kids went to school, so this is 20 years ago, you already had circle time um, and an, an encouragement of children to, um, if you like, talk uh, and discuss themselves at a very, very young age. But now you're starting to get more and more of these types of initiatives where you talk about your confidence, you talk about your self-esteem, you talk about issues to do with identity and depression, it's almost like um, we're almost training children to be therapy cases. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, there are literally these classes on kind of essentially therapeutic discourse, therapeutic discussions. The entire framework is uh, being developed around this. And it's not just in guidance classes. This is the whole idea within education increasingly is they talk about we need to educate the whole child. And when they talk about the whole child, they really are talking about the kind of the emotional dimension of the child. So all teachers need to become more uh, conscious of that. In fact, a friend of mine, this, and again, this was probably 15 years ago, he was told by his supervisor, his boss, that if a teacher came to him and said, I am a teacher of a subject, right, as in what you would think they were there for, um, he would consider sacking that teacher because the teacher should be a teacher of the whole child. Uh, so the idea of emotion, being emotionally literate and highly conscious of the child's emotional self, which is, isn't to say, you know, you, you want robot teachers but you know teachers have always been human beings um but increasingly their job is discussed within this framework of the whole child and you know these various discussions that they have uh, uh regarding how depressed they are how they feel 
how their identity is, how they want to be uh, recognized and so on. So that's a, that's a few examples. I'll, I'll try and find this list no, that, that I can while we're talking. That answers, it, that answers it for me, yeah. And is this something, do you think, that the... That, that parents generally are aware of. I mean, if I, I don't have a child, Stuart, but if I, if I did, my, my belief would be that when I send the, the kid out to school, that he or she is going there to, to develop literacy and numeracy skills. And, uh, you know, to, to, to take a few knocks, to learn a little bit about having to cooperate with people, and to get on, but really to learn things, and then to play a bit of sport. And I, I wouldn't have any idea that any of this could be possible. Is it something parents are aware of? Do you know? Uh, that's a very, very good question, and I wish I knew the answer to that. Yeah. I think, I think some parents are aware of it. Um, I think the majority probably not. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, perhaps some parents think it's a good thing. I've just got this thing for you, right? I know this will be boring for your readers, for our listeners, potentially, right? I've just found it. This is, again, the same school that I'm talking about. And S1, so that's senior one, boys, media, to explore well-being and build confidence. Girls, supporting anxious feelings. These are all different lessons. Uh, uh, S2, boys, um, supporting outdoor well-being. Girls building confidence and self-esteem. Girls confidence and friendship. Boys supporting anxious feelings. Girls confidence and friendship. Girls positive thinking and healthy choices. Uh, both exam stress and preparation. Uh, boys talking about well-being. Uh, uh, boys again, uh, therapeutic coaching. Uh, another one called a transition group. Circle mentoring, mindfulness. Uh, Mindcraft, LGBT, blah, 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 lunch clubs, and on it goes and on it goes. There's, there's a million of these things. Um, I, I don't know, actually. It's a great question, and, and, and I'm, I'm always very interested uh, in talking to parents. I, I, think, I think they can see things like the trans issue. They can see things like the anti-racist uh, curriculum. Uh, they can see environmental activism. So they can see things like that, but this kind of stuff that is embedded within the sort of correct school approach, I think is a bit more invisible than that. Um, although I did have, there was a, <laughs> I've had this twice now. This happened, someone said this to me in London um, when I was speaking at a conference and then someone in Scotland was very, very similarly. One was a mother, one was a grandparent. And they said, my 11-year-old keeps coming back and saying, they keep asking me how I'm feeling, right? And then the next day they say, they're asking me how I'm feeling again. I says, they've asked me if, I'm, if I have depression or if I feel anxiety and blah, 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 blah. And they keep the, talking about this. And then the kids themselves like shrug and they say, I don't know why they keep asking me this. And the sort of parents and grandparents kind of think, God, if they keep this up, <laughs> I don't know what my kid's going to become. So I think parents might be getting it from their kids when they come back, but I don't think they'll necessarily know what to make of it. Um, if you it's ask definitely them, a thing. <laughs> yeah, if you, ask a, a thing. if you ask a child a question enough times, eventually the child, some children anyway, will, will imagine that you're looking for an answer and the child might be inclined to give you the answer 
he or she thinks you want. And in, in the case of, are you feeling a bit down and a bit depressed? The child might imagine, well, the answer they want is yes. And I'll give that answer because it gets me out of being asked the same question over and over again. <laughs> you know, there's a bit, there's a well, bit I think, of... I think another dimension of this is that the um, what it does is it gives kids uh, the language, the sort of therapeutic language. So, you know, they then do these research projects and ask eight and nine-year-olds how they're feeling. And the kids start to say, oh, I have anxiety issues. I have depression. I have this, I have that. And they, they use these terms. But of course, of course, they use those terms because these are the terms they're being educated. So they start to interpret themselves through this uh, sort of psychiatric language, which you know is not a million miles away from me- medicalized. Uh, you know what, what? You know what do you need next? You know because this is a this is a med- these are medical terms. You know, this idea of being traumatized, depressed, being anxious. They're medical terms used by psychiatrists, which of course have just spread like wildfire in society at the minute. And, and is that your? Yeah, so I, I find. I've, Sorry, Sorry, Stuart. Sorry, is that, so that's a genuine concern of yours, that this might lead. The, the natural progression here is for somebody to evaluate the child and to prescribe something. Oh, there's no, absolutely no doubt about it. I mean, the number of kids that are on uh, prescription drugs now um, and the number of kids being diagnosed with all sorts of conditions, and ADHD being an obvious one, which is now spreading to adults, is going through the roof. I mean, 36%, right? This is, I mean, it's an astonishing figure. 36% of Scottish school students have what they call additional support needs, right? So that means they've either got ADHD or they've got dyslexia or they've got anxiety disorder. They've got, some, they've got something that means they need additional support. 36% That's of Scottish school children. And what Absolutely if I, astonishing. What if I said to you, um, Stuart, that some of this anxiety, while well, well, I share your concern that you, you, you could interfere and mess around with the mind of a child in this way, I find this absolutely reprehensible. But there's also the fact that a terrible, terrible thing happened to children in 2020 and 2021. And I'm kind of glad that Molly Kingsley, who I have a lot of time for, who's, um, as you well know, is the woman who set up us for them. They advocate for the rights of children. She's threatening to sue the COVID inquiry if it doesn't do its job and start asking whether lockdowns were legitimate in the first place because of the damage they've done to children. So now you might have the added farce, if I can put it like that. It's not a farce, really, but I can't find a better way of explaining myself, um, whereby children are anxious because they were told in 2020 and 2021 that they were carrying a deadly pathogen that might in turn kill grandmother which was nonsense. But children are very impressionable and you know all about this. And they're dealing with this now, right? So there, there, there must be a, in some cases, there must be genuine anxiety amongst children now because of that. Uh, yeah, I, I, well, uh, what I tend to do is I tend to try and, I mean, I think anxiety I can live with because it's not too much of a sort of diagnostic category. Um, but I'm very careful so I try not not to talk, use the term trauma, uh, depression, and these these sort of categories with children because I think it's it's a kind of it's you know, I'm stepping into that language myself, and I, I, so I suppose what I would say is I think 
that it was harmful for, to children. I think it was, it was limiting in terms of their educational and their social development. Um, and I think it could have, for a, for a small number, a relatively small number, I think it could have led to more serious issues in terms of where you stand to talk men mental health issues. But I was always a little bit uncomfortable with the talk of mental health, Fair even enough. during the, the COVID thing. I was so, you know, I mean, I, I think you can talk about problems without necessarily using that kind of language. And, and I think it's entirely, I think they're right, us for them, what they're doing. I think the COVID inquiry is, is I mean, it's just, it's a comical um, setup as far as I can see in terms of they've already made their decision before it even starts. So um, it's that, even more money going down the toilet. But anyway, that's, that's the way I would No, you're right. Think they, they've, they've decided that the lockdown was the appropriate measure. In fact, they've decided that it might have, it should have happened sooner so as an exercise in getting to the heart of what happened it's nonsense and the, the behavior of the guy the lead barrister hugo keith is is it's ridiculous it's vaudeville comedy is right you're absolutely right to call it a comedy <laughs> stuart stuart Whiten is our guest stuart is a lecturer at Aberté university even though he's a geordie he's not a geordie he'll punch me for saying that if he ever sees me uh, in the future uh, but he's a criminologist he's a writer he's um articles published in the press he's done it all uh, and it's good to have him on the programme. We're talking about an excellent piece on the Substack for the Scottish Union for Education. Of course, I'll put links to it a bit later on. So then the the need for, because teachers are, they're there to make sure that children have a good basic understanding of whichever subject they are teaching. And they sometimes might need to correct a child or impose some disciplinary measures on a child. And it's a great piece you wrote, and it's so very well written. And I've, I've been reading some of the same news articles you've been writing about, about how difficult it is for teachers, how much of a minefield it is now to try and impose a bit of discipline. I'm 48, so I was in secondary school, high school from 1987, 1988. Um, detention was a thing, you know, it was imposed on me a few times for acting the smart aleck or shouting things out or being a bit of a I'm going to say a bit of a dickhead, to be honest, right? So there was a bit of that. Um, exclusion, had a couple of three-day suspensions. I went on to do well in third-level education, but I was a bit of an idiot, and, and that was fair enough. And I look back on it, and I think the teachers were well within their rights, and I certainly didn't have any issues in terms of when I went home, it was like um, I didn't get, you know, it was a clip around the year and, you know, behave yourself kind of a thing. But it's far different today, and not too much time has passed since I was in high school, in terms of the tools available to a teacher to make themselves understood, to make it known that they're in charge, and that this must be done and this must be listened to. Um, not easy, is it, from what you've been finding, Stuart? Well, you see, I would, I would take a step back and say, you presume that the teacher is there to teach a subject, um, but as I just explained to you, <laughs> they're my, not. Yeah. My 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 friend said, if that was your approach, you'd be sacked because you're a teacher of the whole child. And I think I may have mentioned before, there's this document um, for head teachers, it's guidance on head teachers, basically how to become a head teacher and what is education for. And it is a social justice document. They don't they don't try and hide it. They use the term social justice. Um, they talk about intersexuality, they talk about environmentalism, sustainability, um, they talk about caring and 
self-esteem. They talk about a million things, but they never, ever once mentioned subjects and knowledge, not once in that entire document. So you see, I'm not convinced. Even though schools, the underpinning of a school, they still have to actually teach something, right? So it can't disappear. But the entire ethos, certainly the Scottish education system, is absolutely not focused on the idea of knowledge and subjects. Now, the reason I mention that in the context of discipline is that I'm convinced that the basis of discipline in the school is having a teacher who has got a passion and belief in their subject. So the way I think about it is if, if you, you know, say you say you're a teacher of um, geography, I use this partly because this was one of the best teachers I had at school. If you're a teacher of geography, you say and you think the knowledge of geography that we've developed over the last, you know, however many decades, hundreds of years, that knowledge, right, our understanding of the of the planet, of um, the weather systems, of orienteering, of valleys, of, of the farm, how the land operates and works and changes over time and so on. If you think that that is absolutely foundational knowledge that must be passed on to the next generation, you will have an inbuilt will to discipline those children. Not because you're obsessed, obsessed with discipline, but you know that they need to be disciplined to become knowledgeable. And that's how you will operate. And that, I think, is the fundamental problem that teachers face today, is that especially young teachers have very little, and I would say in some cases, absolutely no sense that the subject they're teaching is so fundamentally important and vital, and that knowledge needs to be passed on to kids. Given that situation, I, th I think teachers will lack will uh, and the self-will and sense of passion and purpose to actually be able to discipline kids and this is what you're finding you're finding that discipline levels are constantly going up um they talk about especially low level discipline as the as this particular problem that they're they're finding really difficult to deal with and i think underpinning it is this problem of we actually increase have now a generation of teachers possibly two who don't really have a sense of what it is, what the hell they're actually in the school for in the first place. I mean, there's other problems as well, which I can come on to in terms of where they become obsessed with children's rights and children's identity, uh, which makes things, makes things even more difficult, I think. But I think that would be my starting point for why there's a problem with discipline or ill-discipline. Yeah, it's good, good to drag me back to the more, more important point, which you did. You did very smoothly there. Yeah, this idea that it's now... Um, in in some instances, and it seems like widespread in Scotland, the experience, the educational experience for for the child is actually really a kind of a programming. It's a programming in in concepts around social justice and anti-racism, and allyship with um, LGBT yeah. people and all of this sort of yeah. stuff. I opened up my app the other day. I'm a Man United fan. And I, I go to the home game, so I open my app to, to go and get a ticket for the um, Aston Villa game on Boxing Day. So anyway, I opened it up, Stuart. And on the homepage of the app was a video that had been created by Manchester United. I swear to God, I, I've got screen grabs. I, I never lie. I certainly wouldn't be lying on this programme. And there was um, a video made by the club to explain to me, that this wasn't aimed at children, funnily enough, to explain to me how I can be a better ally 
to LGBT people in the community. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's what? everywhere. And, and, and you imagine that in terms of schools. Children, right? yeah. So I'm now, going to, I, I, I'm now going to read you. Right? I, I almost feel sorry for this school, but it is so bad. This is James Gillespie High School in Edinburgh. I am looking at a poster somebody sent to me um, uh, surreptitiously, which has James Gillespie principles, guidelines for everybody. Right? This is a properly printed and produced poster with nice little pictures created by uh, James Gillespie um, High School pupils and staff for all James Gillespie High School's pupils and staff. Number one, everyone has the right to be called by their name and pronouns. This is the number one principle for James Gillespie High School. And then it mentions UNCRC Article 7 and 8. I don't know what that's got to do with uh, you, the right to be called by your pronouns, as it's not a right. But anyway, uh, number four uh, says all teachers must sensitively represent diverse identities in their subject area and teaching materials and not re-traumatise individuals. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry if this is boring, but I've got to read that again. Hang, hang on, this, 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 is not, this is not boring at all. My mouth is on the floor right. now. It's on right. the floor. All teachers must sensitively, this is in subjects, right, in their actual subjects, must sensitively represent diverse identities in their subject area, good luck geography, and teaching materials and not re-traumatize individuals. You see already there's a presumption of trauma before we even start. Uh, and the final one uh, I've got here, number six, says everyone has the right for their presentation, identity and appearance to be respected. Right. Now, one of, the, one of the key problems I have with this, I mean, you imagine this in the context of the idea of discipline and what a school is for and knowledge and that you're actually trying to drag kids into this adult world of knowledge. What this does is it turns a school into, it basically institutionalizes narcissism. Right? Yeah, it it does, says yeah. to the kids, you're the, you're the most important thing. Yeah. Your identity, yourself, your inner self, and your, your belief or think, thought of what it is, ever it is about yourself, is the most important thing. And our school and our teachers and our subjects are going to take the knee to you. Right? That, I just think, is an absolute travesty. It is turning education upside down in terms of what it should be doing. Right, which is dragging kids into this world of knowledge and the beauty of, of knowledge and this weight of, you know, everything that we've learned for hundreds of years and saying, actually, our principles are all about you. That's like, my goodness, <laughs> it's just appalling. Narcissism, yeah. And, and what, what does it do to, some, what does it do for something like competition? you know, for individual achievement. I mean, if they're telling everybody that, um, you know, we're here to support your presentation of whatever it is you think you are, and we're here to validate that and to accept it and to uh, glorify it, I don't know. But what does it do for, um, for the idea that we live or we used to live in a meritocracy? So does meritocracy 
Is it dead? Does that end now? Is that gone completely? You know, competition. Well, I, I'll, I'll give I'll give you an example of what I, one one thing that I think it does, which is um, this. I noticed when I went to see my um, daughter's nativity play. So again, this this is at least ten years ago. So one of the things that was great about nativity plays is, and I, I can remember this when I was a kid, is that they would get kids to sing and they would have the best singers sing the song and they would have the kid with the angelic voice would be the, the angel, the archangel or yeah. whatever it was. And Joseph would be the guy with the, you know, there was this really great, beautiful singing 11-year-old boy the, with the three kings. I remember this because... I was substitute for the three kings, and I was really upset that I wasn't actually <laughs> one of the three kings. But I had to, I had to learn all the other three kings verses in case one of them was ill. But I wasn't. I can still remember who the three kings were. The understudy. You were the understudy. I was trauma- <laughs> traumatized by this. But what happens in those nativity plays when done properly is that you see these brilliant kids present something that is beautiful and brings a tear to your eye. And even as a kid, it's the, but you see this in the parents as well, the parents and the kids are uplifted by this, right? And all the kids are uplifted by this because you're inspired by the best, right? Even the best in your school, you're inspired by it. And you think, oh, that's great. Now what happens in the different places, everyone gets a line, right? So it's like every kid needs to sing one line so you've got like there's about a, you know 50 of them on the stage and you know you've got one kid singing one line one next kid singing another line next kid singing another line no you're not you can't differentiate right because you know what about the poor kid who doesn't get a line and so on and so forth and so everything even that's dumbed down you know even that the kind of that that can be something that's inspiring that you remember you know this kid who was a really great singer and so on even that's suffocated you know and that's uh, uh, and, and one of the things I, I think one of the things about education is we find it very difficult to, to accept that education is for society right and as parents we all become obsessed with our kids what our kids are doing instead of thinking well actually education part of what education does is it differentiates right who are the super smart kids and you find them and you say right we want to push them even harder Right? We want to push those kids even not. We want them to read, start reading classics. You know, we want them to start reading stuff earlier. We want them to get into science earlier, push them harder and all the rest of it. And that's one of my real worries is that that brilliance and that push to get the brightest and the smartest kids. But also, I mean, you want all the kids to be aspiring. You, know, you want to be pushing everybody to get to as high a level as possible, but especially those really smart kids they should be at a level now that, I mean, in Scotland, the level of education, I mean, it's absolutely atrocious. And that's what the, the latest uh, PISA results, which is a kind of test that um, schools across countries and looks at their performance. And Scotland's performance is just sinking like a stone at the minute. Um, and the, the overall level of education, even for the smartest kids, is tragically poor. It's grim, this, isn't it? Because you look forward 15 or 20 years and you think these will, you know, from that group of kids, you're expected to, you know, to have leaders and innovators and 
um, entrepreneurs and you listen to this and I've, I've read the article and I've looked into it before you coming on because you gave me plenty of notice over the weekend and um, it's true all of this is actually happening it's uh, I, I Stepford kids or Stepford wives comes to mind China I used to wonder years ago you know a um, friend of mine travelled in China and he said you know it's amazing how, how polite and how subservient and how completely inoffensive the Chinese are and I'm not qualified to talk about this, but you, you know exactly where I'm going with that. I mean, there is a kind of a com communitarianism kind of thing going on here as well, isn't there? You know, creating Stepford kids. No? Well, if there, certainly is, there certainly is in terms of the values. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, you know, they're, they're absolutely upfront that they, what they're teaching values. And they, they say it, they say it, they say it in politics and they say it in education. They say, we want to change the culture, right? And what they mean is they, they don't like the values of your parents, right? Because they think your parents are kind of a bit racist, a bit sexist, a bit homophobic, obviously going to be transphobic. They're probably not that good on the environment and so on. They want to change the culture, right? And this is their job. And I mean, it's... It, <laughs> It is Maoism. I've said this before. It's a, it's like a form of Maoism where yeah, yeah. you think that it's acceptable for you to instill your values, and and it's becoming really strongly embedded now within the entire education system. That yeah, that's that's what education is for. And you know, at a certain level, I could almost live with it if it didn't also mean that the standards of education are collapsing because. You can see there's a logical link there between yeah, if if you think your job is kind of partly therapeutic and partly values and partly identity, well, where's the space for education? You know, where's the space for knowledge? Where's the space for pressure? You know, um, yeah. exams are going to go. You know, I mean, I would be surprised if you know if exams in Scotland last five years. I mean, you know, we'll see, but I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if they start to get get rid of exams in schools and potentially in universities as well. Jesus Christ! Sorry for swear. What 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 what, 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 what would replace the exams then? Um, a, a social credit score or something? Well, the the problem in schools is that they'll um, they replace it with um, schoolwork that you do. Right. Uh, that you'll do that you'll do it that you'll do at home, and the thing that I find really problematic about that is that it benefits the middle class kids. It might not benefit them in terms of actually having a good education, but you know you imagine a nice, comfortably off middle class kid whose parent is now supplementing their education with private education tutors. That so that's happening. You, you, you're actually even getting schools that encourage it. You know, so again, when my kids were at school, uh, we would get leaflets from our school about the availability of private tutors. You think, well, this is like the privatization of education. Why are you sending me a leaflet about private tutors? Aren't you teaching my kids? Right? And so this is happening more and more. And you'll find a massive growth, uh, which is already happening, in private tuition. Of course, the poorer kids, right, they don't get that. Right? And nor are they in a, in a position where they can necessarily ask their parents for help with their history homework, geography homework, and so on. So there's an inbuilt class bias going to develop within the work that's presented, and that's that's what's going to develop. And so you know you get move move away from an exam structure, 
and have this stuff where it's, uh, you know, it's done more softly, softly with doing it with the teacher, doing it at school. Um, and again, in terms of the, what, what standard this will be at, what role the teacher might play in terms of helping kids, um, what role the parents play, all, the, all these things come into question. Uh, and this is, you know, it's already developing in Scotland fairly, uh, fairly quickly, I think. Couple of things I I'll take away from this, and I'll give you the final word in a moment, Stuart. This idea that mum and dad are seen as ah, oh, um, kind of um, some kind of kind of prehistoric type people with with unfavorable views on race and and sexuality. So we need to instill that we need to take over the role of parenting effectively and instill these kind of wokest values in children. That's bad enough. But where we came in, this all of these modules, all of these, the, the things you talked about where kids are exposed to concepts of um, of therapy and how that might end up in, in some cases with children being um, sent to see somebody who might prescribe something for them. I mean, it's like, it sounds like there's like a war. I, I don't like to use these um, sensationalist terms because I generally try and avoid them. But it's like a war on the minds of children. You know, that's what it sounds like. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think it's a kind of, uh, I, and I, I do think when they, when they talk about culture war, I think that's not misplaced. I think there is a culture war. And I think that this is the framework that if you think, as I think that this is what, I, I, if I, just, I just wrote something on anti-racism where I was looking at all the evidence of what a horrendously racist country the UK is. And actually, every serious piece of research finds the UK to be one of the least racist places in the world. Right. I mean, lit- literally one of the least racist places in the world. In fact, there's one, I can't remember, there's questions around things like, um, would, you marry, uh, would you marry someone that wasn't of your race? And, you know, the UK like comes out top and it's like in 93%, would you have a neighbour who's not what, 90 odd percent? Would you have this, you know, it's like every serious piece of research suggests that uh, Britain is one of the least racist places you could ever be in. But you read the documents by educationalists, right? And they say the absolute opposite, right? And they, they even go as far as to say schools and universities are places where racism is embedded and systemic and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, what is it they're saying, right? What is it they're saying if they're saying that? Well, essentially, they're saying you're you're scum, right? It's the same thing as I said about the football. You know, you're talking about Man United trying to teach you. Yeah, they they treat football fans as if they're all backward Neanderthals. It's exactly the same as what happens in education. Because if if you're saying that we need anti-racism in every part of the curriculum, right, and this needs to be the, the value system, why do you need that? Well, you need that, obviously, because racism is everywhere and all these scumbags and their kids are racist. Right? And it's, <laughs> that's essentially the message. That's, that's how they think of society in the world. So it is a, there is a culture war taking place, absolutely no question about it. Um, and schools are a key area where this is now being uh, transmitted. There's absolutely no question about it. Folks, subscribe to the Scottish Union for Education Substack. It is scottishunionforeducation.substack.com 
And if you're listening in Scotland or, well, it doesn't matter where you're listening and you know somebody who's got children in school, share this um, interview with them. Have them listen to Stuart um, because this is really going on. I'm an argumentative old bastard. I love to argue and I, I can't pick any holes in what Stuart has been saying today or other days because it all stacks up. This is actually going on in schools and I'm guessing a lot of parents because the world is a... It's a difficult place these days for people. People are um, preoccupied by by cost of living issues and, and everything else and trying to keep you know above the water and pay the mortgage. A lot of people won't be aware that the kids are not going to school to develop good skills in writing, in reading and in uh, mathematics, developing good social skills by learning to get on with people. Not through wokeism, but you know, learning to take a few knocks and a few spills and a bit of criticism the rough and tumble of it and kind of maturing. That isn't happening. What's happening is exactly as Stuart Waiton described there, Scottish Union for Education.substack.com. If you've got something else to add, pal, this is the time to do it. But I just want to thank you for coming on through uh, 2023. I always enjoy chatting with you. It's always educational. And um, I appreciate it, Stuart. So final word to you, buddy. Well, I've, I've got nothing else to say. I was, just, I was just thinking when you mentioned Manchester United, I was thinking, you know, Manchester United, Scottish education system, Kind of, you know, there's, a, there's similar similarities there. I just thought I'd leave you, I'd leave you with that one. I'm getting dogs abused from a friend of mine from Waterford who's a Liverpool fan. But um, thanks, mate. I really appreciate it. Scottish Union for Education at Substack.com. Stuart, Merry Christmas and speaking the New Year. Great. Cheers. Bye. Bye for now. Stuart Whiten, lecturer, author, um, newspaper journalist, and much more besides speaking to us on Monday's Richie Allen show. I've never heard it so succinctly described what is going on in schools in the UK, but, but, but it's happening quicker and more obviously in Scottish schools there. Wow. I want to give a shout out. I don't think I've ever given him a shout out. There's an old pal of mine from Browns Road in Waterford, from Belvedere Drive, and his name is Ray Malone. He's a valued old mate of mine, old family friend, and he is a Liverpool fan. And he sent me a message there. I did watch the game. I didn't mention it today, obviously, because um, why would you be mentioning it and, uh, and and all of that? But Ray says, uh, great show. He says, Richie, keep up the great work. Ye robbed a point yesterday. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it, that United robbed a point at Anfield. You could also say Liverpool were pretty wasteful or that they didn't create too much considering all of the possession Liverpool enjoyed. But I was glad to get out of there without getting a hiding like we got last year, but we won't mention that. Uh, nearly it for the programme. Listen, The Papers is a podcast, which um, is a podcast, right? It'll be online tomorrow tomorrow morning early, early-ish, so sometime before 8am, The Papers will be available. We will talk again tomorrow, Tuesday, at 5 o'clock UK, 4 o'clock UK time. I told you, I'm going to become flaky as the week develops more flaky than I ordinarily um, behave like. So yeah, as as we wind, I'm in a winding down process now. I'm in the process of being decommissioned for the Christmas break. But look, we've got some good guests. I can't even tell you, but I've got a good, really good guest tomorrow. I know that because I'm excited about it. Can't tell you who it is. And then, uh, and then later on in the week as well. Thanks so much to Stuart Waiton. Thank you, Stuart. And uh, really enjoyed Christine Hart in the first hour too. Closing out today with Van Morrison. Why not? 
Sloan Tommel. Until tomorrow. Bye now.